Our scripture this morning comes from Romans 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verses 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationship relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Let's open up with a word of prayer, because clearly I'm going to need it this morning, talking about this passage. I think we'll all need it, actually, so let's, uh, let's come before the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we... God, we just want to say we love you. Um, We're so grateful for the kindness and the mercy that you've shown to us in Jesus Christ. And God, we want to honor you. Uh, We want to honor your word. Uh, We want to hold fast to you, God. So would you please strengthen us, fill us with your spirit, help us to trust in you, God. Despite all the pressures around us, I pray that we would trust in you, not in our own abilities or in anything else, God. Um, You are our only hope. You are glorious. You are wonderful. We praise your name, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul's not really a fan of small talk, is he? In a way, he reminds me of my daughters when they wake up in the morning. Uh, the first thing that they say to me in the morning is, is what's, on, what's, on, what's on their heart, what's most important to them. And the first thing they say to me is not, good morning, Dad. I love you, Dad. Dad, thank you for letting me wake you up five times last night. No, the first thing that comes out of their mouths is, 
I'm hungry, Dad. Food, Dad. What's for breakfast, Dad? Uh, in a way, Paul is doing the same thing. He's telling us what is most important to him. He essentially opens this letter by saying, this is the gospel. This is the power of God for salvation. Point number one, you are all wicked, miserable sinners that are fully and completely deserving of God's wrath. And we can read passages like this, and it can be difficult. We can struggle with it a little bit. You know, for lack of a better term, it can bum us out. And part of the reason for that is because we don't really talk about God's wrath in the evangelical church in America. Uh, for example, like if you just look at the most popular Christian songs, I can guarantee you none of them are about God's wrath. Right? If really, if there's, if there's one group singing about God's wrath, it's the CC community, and that's it. All right? They're singing about God's wrath in Latin. But outside of them, no one is talking about the wrath of God. So it can be difficult. But what's important for us to remember as we try to understand this and, and know how it applies to our lives uh, we need to remember how this passage relates to the message of Romans as a whole. And if you guys remember from last week, uh, we talked about what is essentially Paul's thesis statement in the book of Romans, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 1. We saw that Romans is about how the gospel reveals God's righteousness. All right, so let's read 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Why? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, we need to understand how our passage this morning connects back to this one. And thankfully, that's going to be pr pretty easy because verse 18 comes right after verse 17. Right? Verse 17 ends with the necessity of faith that we live by trusting in God. Why? Verse 18, because all people deserve God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, right off the bat, we see that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel has made a way for any and all who believe to be delivered from the consequences that we all deserve. This letter begins with the idea that our only hope, the only hope in escaping from just condemnation is in a God who is righteous, and what that means is that uh, salvation that counts is salvation that comes from a God who takes sin seriously, right? A righteous God provides salvation. A salvation that counts comes from a God who is righteous, a God who takes sin seriously, who doesn't wink at sin, who doesn't look the other way. No, salvation is provided by a God who takes, who deals with sin, who takes care of sin. 
So we have to talk about some difficult things. We have to talk about some unpopular things, uh, some things that would get you canceled, kicked off social media. But when we water down sin, we water down salvation. We water down the gospel. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I change this message because Paul has already began his letter with, he's already prefaced us with the fact that there is a perfect, righteous God who willingly saves sinners, right? No one coerced him. No one bribed him. We have not given him a gift that we might be repaid. This God freely and willingly saves sinners because he is a God who is gracious and holy. This God deals with sin. So main idea this morning. All have suppressed the truth by their unrighteousness. Therefore, all are without excuse. All have suppressed the truth. Therefore, all are without excuse. Or we could say, therefore, all deserve God's wrath. All stand under God's wrath. There are three movements to this passage. Like uh, Paul's logic uh, flows into each three of these categories. One, he begins with idolatry, turning away from the Lord. This idolatry leads to judgment. And finally, we see that those who have turned away from the Lord are without excuse. So idolatry, judgment, without excuse. This is the movement of Paul's thought. So let's pick up with point number one. What we see in verses 7, or 18 through 23 is that idolatry is the reason that the wrath of God is revealed. So reading from verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In Paul's language, turning away from the Lord is identical to idolatry. Right? Uh, Verse... 21, they knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What is the flip side of that? They became futile in their thinking and they exchanged God's glory for other things. In Paul's language, turning away from the Lord is the same thing as idolatry. And we can have it in our minds that in order to be idolaters, right? we, we probably wouldn't call ourselves idolaters because we're thinking that in order to be, commit idolatry and be idolaters, we need some sort of physical, material thing that we bow down and worship to. 
right? That's not the case. Turning away from the Lord, denying his glory, exchanging his glory for something else is idolatry. There's no such thing as like a flat, neutral state. Once you've turned away from the Lord, that's when you've committed idolatry. God's authority and his existence are plainly known. And whenever we deny this reality, whenever we exchange this knowledge for something else, that's idolatry. Now we can look at this text with our modern sensibilities and think to ourselves, wow, what fools, what ignorant pagans worshiping creeping things. How stupid. We might not worship images, but how quickly will we turn away from the authority of God and worship money, position, pleasure, comfort? How quickly will we exchange God's glory for things that build up our own glory? How quickly will we exchange the glory of God to worship ourselves? And we talk about worshiping creepy things. This is something that really we all know, that self-worship, that self-idolatry ends up being really creepy, right? The people in history that have caused the most damage have made themselves out to be gods, right? Uh, they've taken the idea that what they want matters more than anything else. They've taken that idea to like its, its end, They've gone all, all in on that idea. I think a great example of this is in the movie Gladiator. Great movie. Almost as good as John Wick. Really good. Uh, there's a character, Commodus. He looks creepy, right? He's an evil, creepy guy. And the reason for that is because he's wholeheartedly given himself to this idea that what he wants matters more than anything else, more than what other people want, more than other people's safety, more than their good, right? He makes himself out to be a god. Yeah, he's a Roman, so he's got a pantheon, but he's at the top of that pantheon. My point is that whether we turn to something external like money or fame, or position, or whether we turn to something internal, like our pride, or uh, our feelings, our desires. Once you have turned away from the Lord to anything else, that is idolatry. That's when you've committed idolatry. God's existence and his authority are plainly seen. Right? It is not by chance that we live on an earth that is perfectly conditioned to sustain life. Like somehow we breathe air and survive. Like there's a perfect blend of nitrogen and oxygen so we can breathe here. Plants convert sunlight into energy so that we can eat those plants, but more importantly, so that we can eat the things that eat those plants. Amen. We are, yes, amen. Amen. We are the perfect distance away from the sun so that life can be sustained here. Right? The love between a husband and a wife, the feeling between a husband and a wife, or a child and a parent, that is not a survival instinct. 
No, the love we experience is real. It is meaningful because we've been created in the image of God. All these things and so many more point to the fact that there is a good, powerful, sovereign architect. Our existence, our entire human experience has God's signature written all over it. Right, that is why Paul says in verse 20, they are without excuse. Those who have turned away from God are without excuse. Which leads to judgment. Second point. Verse 24. Here's the judgment. Therefore God gave them up. That is God's judgment. When God gives humanity up into the sinful desires that it wants, that's judgment. When God gives us up to our own sinful desires, that is his judgment. That is his wrath being revealed in our lives. So that means that when we're caught in our sin, when we're convicted, when we're found out, when our sin is revealed, that is God's mercy. It is his discipline to lead us back to him. Right? You can't love someone without disciplining them. We discipline our children. We keep them from running out into the street. We get on them for it, not because we want to be mean to them. We reveal their error and their sin, not because we want to be mean to them, but because we love them. So look, I'm going to read some verses, verses 26 through 28, that have a message that is entirely contradictory to the message that we see in our world. But a couple things I want us to keep in mind as we get into this. Uh, number one, we're not here to submit to the message of the world. We're here to submit to the authority of God and his word. And number two, Paul is not doing here what you might be tempted to think he's doing. So stick with me, please. God's wrath is currently being revealed today. We see God's wrath being revealed in our society. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up, right? There's that phrase again. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up again to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, there is a, a war being waged against these verses and verses like them in the Bible. To make them say something that they are clearly not saying. Many have tried to distort and twist these verses as to suggest 
that Paul is only talking about promiscuous homosexual behavior or abusive homosexual behavior, right? As if he's not talking about monogamous homosexual behavior. That is clearly what Paul, that is, that is absolutely not what Paul is saying. What Paul is clearly saying is that homosexual relations of any sort, homosexual behavior, right? His emphasis is on behavior, men committing shameless acts with men. Any type of homosexual behavior is in blatant, direct opposition to God's order. Some words that he uses to describe this. Shameless, debased, unnatural. Homosexuality, homosexual behavior is clearly sin. And God gives people up to these desires as an expression of his judgment. You look at this passage, there's no question about it. That is not in question. The real question is why does Paul highlight homosexuality at all? Why talk about homosexuality at all? Right, in uh, Jewish culture, in early Christianity, you know, no one questioned whether or not homosexuality was a sin. So why bring it up, Paul? Well, we might be tempted to think that Paul brings it up because it's the worst thing. Like it's the pinnacle sin. The worst thing that you could do. But that is not it. That is not the reason Paul highlights homosexuality. It's not the worst thing you can do. There are more heinous things that you could do. Paul highlights homosexuality because it is the clearest example of a flagrant rejection of God's order. It is, you know, homosexuality is not a secret thing, right? This wasn't a hidden sin. It's a flagrant rejection of the way that God has ordered life. It's a flagrant rejection of his authority. Homosexuality calls up, down, right, left, black, white. It could not be clearer, any more clear the way things should be. And homosexuality says, I don't want that. It is a clear rejection of God's order. Again, it's not the worst thing. That's not why Paul brings it up. No, the reason Paul brings it up is because it is a particularly good illustration of how humanity likes to take the good things that God gives us and ruin them. And now at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, this is so mean. Like, how can you say that all people are welcome here? We just made a big deal out of that at the beginning, really emphasized that. How can you say that the gospel's for all people? Well, just because we welcome all, it doesn't mean that we don't want people to change, myself included. Right? The gospel should change all of our lives. We are a church that values the gospel because it is not only the power to save us from sin, 
but to transform our hearts so that we no longer love sin. So sinners are welcome here. Sinners are allowed here. If sinners weren't welcome here, then I would have to leave along with all of you. So if you made it this far, (laughs) stick around. And I'll say it again, because Paul is not doing what you might think he's doing here. Last point. In verses 29 through 32, Paul continues to describe the character of those who have turned away from the Lord. We've seen that idolatry is turning away from God. Turning away from God leads to judgment. That judgment is essentially giving us over to our desires. Okay, this is what people who are given over to their desires look like in verses 29 through 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, right? The old evil's not good enough. Disobedient to parents and every child that's ever been born. (laughs) Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul is thorough in his description. A lot of overlap between these categories, right? He's not letting anything slip through the cracks. And it is apparent, it is very clear that this kind of behavior deserves death, right? Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In other words, they are without excuse. They know God's righteous decree. They know that it deserves death. They do it anyway, and they give approval to those who do it. They are without excuse. Paul makes that point over and over again in Romans chapter 1. But here's my question to you. Who is they? If, if you're reading, if you're looking at verse 18, Paul just kind of jumps into it and starts off by saying their unrighteousness. What can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. So they are without excuse. They knew God. They did not honor him. They became futile. They became fools. God gave them up into their lusts. They, them, there. They, them, there. Sounds like Twitter. Who is they? Well, what's going to help us answer this question is if we think about this passage from its context, right? Think about who the letter to the Romans was written to. It was written to the Roman church. And Paul has highlighted idolatry and sexual immorality and homosexuality. So for the Roman church, when they hear the word they, who are they thinking about? 
the people around them, those godless Romans. They're fornicators, they're homosexuals, they're idolaters. I got some pictures of some Roman statues here, right? This sort of thing was all around. Idolatry was all around. Immoral behavior was all around them. So when they hear they, who they're thinking of is pagan Gentiles. They are the ones without excuse. Is that what Paul's getting at here? Like I said, Paul just begins by saying they, them, there. He never explicitly tells us who they is. It's just they, 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 until you get to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He has just identified they. It is you and it is me. Up to this point, everybody in the congregation was saying, yes, Paul, amen, Paul. Man, they are so bad. Our culture is so bad. Those people out there are so bad, so wicked. They have no excuse. Get them, Paul. Guess how many groups Paul thinks of? Does he think of us and them? Does he think of Jew and Gentile? Paul thinks of one group, the unexcused. Every single person is without excuse, especially you who have been filling in the blank with they. Every single first century Christian, especially every single first century Jewish Christian, was filling in the blank with pagan, with Gentile. So church, who have you been filling in the blank with? Those godless single marines, they're the reason we can't have nice things. Those ridiculous Gen Zers, they get all their dating and life advice from TikTok. How stupid. Those woke progressives. Can't they just let us enjoy things without trying to cancel everything? Those moralistic, self-righteous conservatives. They're the problem. Who is they? In your mind, who is they? You see, Paul has just led the Roman church down a garden path. Don't you think that sin deserves punishment? Don't you think that idolatry deserves punishment? Well, yeah, of course, Paul. That means you are without excuse. 
you have just admitted, you have just said that it is good for God to judge sin. You have just admitted that you deserve punishment. You know, this, this is a radical conception of sin and its, and its consequences. I hope we can see that. Like, for the, the Jewish believer in that context, the person that never would have dreamed to bow down to an idol or commit fornication or anything of the sort, Paul is saying that that person has, is just as much in a place where they are without excuse as the pagan homosexual. Does it make more sense now why Paul brings up homosexuality? Paul brings up homosexuality because it's a clear example of someone who has no excuse. Just like they have no excuse, so do I. I have no excuse. You have no excuse. Do you know why I can say with complete conviction that all are welcome here? You know why I can say with conviction that the gospel is the power of salvation for all? It's because we're all one group. Those who have no excuse. So whether you struggle with homosexuality or idolatry or fornication, I can say that Christianity is just as much for you as it is for me. Or at least it can be. Because the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. I am just as much without an excuse as you are. I am in just as desperate need of a savior as you are. You know what defines us as a group? The fact that we desperately need a righteousness that is counted to us apart from our behavior. That is how Paul is uniting us. We are the group. We are the people who desperately need a righteousness apart from our works. And praise God that he has provided that righteousness in his son Jesus Christ. God sent his precious, perfect, glorious, almighty son. And he took a full, complete human nature and he lived a perfect life and he died a criminal's death on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the grave because he has the authority to lay down his life and take it back up again. Jesus Christ on the cross exchanged his perfect righteousness for the penalty of our wickedness. He traded places with us. He switched with us, became a substitute for us. And all that is required for this work to count for you is to believe in him 
to trust in him. Place your trust in him. Not just believe some fact about him, but to place your trust in him. Receive, open your hand and receive the gift of his righteousness, the gift of his substitutionary work. And then you may know that your unrighteousness has been put to death and that you have been clothed with the perfect obedience of God's own son. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, I am a great sinner. I have no excuse, but praise God, I have a greater savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your kindness. God, what incredible, lavish kindness and mercy you have shown to us in your son Jesus. God, thank you for providing a righteousness that is counted apart from what we have done. Father, we love you and we confess uh, that we do not love you as we should. God, thank you for your patience. Fill us with your spirit. Purify and sanctify our hearts and our lives so that we may honor you uh, with everything that we do, God. Father, we love you. Help us to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.